Hello, and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Giuseppe Stuto. I have Giuseppe Stuto, co-founder and managing partner of 186 Ventures. 186 Ventures is a venture capital firm founded by former high-growth tech executives themselves. So they've been there and they know how to advise people who are going through that same journey. And with that, here's my interview with 186 Ventures. Giuseppe, thanks for taking the time. No, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Jason. All right. So Giuseppe, uh, is it 186 or 186? I should ask that to start. Both work, but let's say 186. 186. Okay. So 186 Ventures, Giuseppe Studo of 186 Ventures. Tell us about 186 Ventures. Sure. We're an early stage pre-seed and seed venture capital firm. So we invest typically at the earliest stages. There may or may not be a company incorporated, or there may be a business already with over a million dollars in annual revenue. We primarily invest in the U.S., primarily in the Northeast. We also do a fair amount out in SF and and other West Coast cities. Areas of focus are primarily software across AI-enabled automation, embedded financial infrastructure, developer tooling, some blockchain infrastructure, and then, of course, your general SaaS, whether it be within the healthcare workplace and so on. And we will opportunistically do a little bit of consumer. So... Yeah, those are the oh, areas. financial stuff. Look, because let's face it, it's a fintech podcast, right? So we'll get to that too. Exactly. All right. Okay. So tell me about the history of the company. Sure. So the genesis of 186 Ventures was actually my best friend Julian and I. We started angel investing together while we were both still at a Boston-based consumer company called DraftKings. So formerly, I was a founder. I built a company in the group video infrastructure space, which sold to DraftKings in Q2 of 2018. And then shortly thereafter, my good friend Julian and I started doing a bunch of angel investing together in January of 2019. And we did it under the name, a brand name. So today it's 186 Ventures. Uh, We wrote 32 angel checks. And then following three years during that time of investing in these early stage companies as angel investors, we found that for various reasons, founders were really resonating with our messaging and our support. And coupled with the fact that we saw there was never before was there more of a time where founders should partner with firms that actually have institutional know-how and being able to build companies themselves. So in mid-2021, right around the peak, actually, where many funds were coming to market, new ones particularly, we decided to institutionalize our platform and raise our first fund vehicle, which is a $37 million fund today, where on average... We're investing a quarter million upwards to a million and a half dollars in our initial check. So I would say early 2019, the brand was founded. And then in fall of 2021, we started investing out of our first institutional vehicle. Excellent. All right. So basically, let's go back to the reason for the institutional vehicle. What did you feel was not happening or what you weren't bringing to the table? Or what was the real gap there that you were trying to fill by saying, you know what, we're moving beyond Angel. Let's make this more professionalized or whatever term you want to use. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. For sure. And uh, we think about this every day, but come mid 2021, although there was an unprecedented amount of capital that was and continues to be allocated towards the early stage, we concluded that there was a fundamental dislocation between the amount of institutional support needed to back all of this capital coming into the early stage market relative to the actual dry powder on the sidelines. And that coupled with the fact that we we have a track record at that point we had, and we continue to have a track record where our support know-how is many times unparalleled to the other peers at the table. We figured, A, we could capitalize on this gap in the market, which is unusual to say because there's plenty of capital available, but that actual institutional know-how at the seed stage seems to be a bit underwhelming. 
And then at the same time, it's our mission. We were founders and executive operators ourselves. We know how important it is to have the right partners early on. Now, to be clear, we are always candid that investors do little to nothing in the grand scheme of things in helping founders build the business. I mean, we pick up the phone whenever they call. Of course, there are one or two things we do meaningfully every year that could, in many ways, steepen the trajectory and growth of a company. But ultimately, we know our place. And, and that right there is actually what is lacking, is enough VCs knowing when to lean in, how to be patient, and really just let founders do their thing, fall on their faces sometimes, and hopefully help them get back up, right? So that's kind of the, the mission in, in, in a nutshell, why we really decided to build 186 and how we think we differentiate among other things. And of course, there's more specific frameworks and processes that we're very proud of that we've institutionalized internally that I'm happy to get into, such as helping companies and founders indirectly yet proactively build out a network of downstream capital network members, like prospective series A leads without really spending time doing that so they can focus more on the business and building the product, for example. Yeah. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you're right. At the end of the day, the, the, the capital doesn't do the work, right? That's really what you're getting at. You can sure. do a lot to kind of point them in the right direction and bring that experience to the table. But at the end of the day, they're going to have to do the heavy lifting. And that's an important piece. And, you know, you're talking about the gap in the market. I think it's not so much a gap as it's a issue that is commonly, oh, it's a gap that exists because of an issue that commonly happens. And it's, I've met many a seed stage funding VC over the years who basically goes seed in an early stage. And then we go back to them a couple of years later and they're like, yeah, you know, we're still playing that ball's part, but, but now we're looking for like 2 million of ARR. It's like, oh, so you're not a seed stage investor. Anymore. Like why? Like right. I, I get it. Like uh, people start to move up the food chain as they can write bigger and bigger checks. And the reality is this, there's a survivorship bias, right? So the reality is, is that at seed, there's a lot of failure. The higher up, the later you get, the higher the probability of an exit, right? Like it's just, it is what it is, but everybody's got a risk appetite when they start out. Let's see how they don't always stay there. I hope you continue to stay there and continue to feed that this part of the ecosystem because this is where the gap is. This is where the gap is constantly just because of the evolution of the VCs. All right, sure. so let's talk about the underlying. Usually there's two things I look at with VCs. Okay, what's your unique value proposition in terms of how you compete and round out other than just the segment? The segment's valuable. I think the experience of having been there and done that's incredibly valuable, but there's also an underlying thesis to the investment. So let's start with the how you round out the offering besides saying, hey, we're here at this stage. And we've been there. Like, what are you doing to kind of get them through that and telling them that you're the guys that they should be dealing with? Sure. A few different things we do, I would say. One is for our investment process consists of two main phases, right? The first phase is kicked off after an initial meeting or call with the founders uh, or CEO. And following that initial call, we usually determine within about a week or so whether or not we're going to meaningfully lean in. Let's assume that we do decide to meaningfully lean in. Right from the initial call itself, and sometimes even before, but for the most part, with right in the initial call itself, we make sure that we leave that initial meeting with two or three ways we can begin to provide value to that founder, right? And we do that for a couple of reasons. One is, well, it's kind of just the organic thing to talk about when you're, you're speaking with an entrepreneur, you probably should talk about some of the problems that are top of mind for them. And we do that because... Not just because we like to be helpful to every founder, because unfortunately, we do obviously spend more time with those that we invest in or try to invest in, just the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, because it then allows us to get a head start 
on proving our value, but at the same time, and we say this to founders too, streamlining it with doing our diligence. Ultimately, it's usually two in the same. For example, we just, just actually was just announced this morning. We led the seed round in a company called Integrated Projects. They're digitizing the world of real estate. More specifically, they're building a series of AI automation tools that allow for the conversion of 3D stitched together video and point cloud data into building information models at millimeter scale accuracy, right? In the first meeting, Jose, the CEO and founder, said to us, looking to meet real estate owner operators because our number one key performance indicator is ingesting square footage, commercial and residential. Great. Mm -hmm. We noted that. And within about a week, we, we caught some of them were LPs. Some of them are just people that we know, owner operators and architects in our network. And we pinged them and we set up meetings with the CEO and we sit on those meetings. What does that do? One of two things. One, it demonstrates that we actually have access beyond just saying we have access. Two, it gets to the point of diligence because we're, we're literally letting the cust- prospective customer and the CEO do the diligence for us live. We're just taking notes at that point. And then three, if things work out, which in this case it did, we convert customers for the CEO. And what it actually does is, well, it demonstrates that value add, but it also kind of starts to cement your positioning in the round. If you're build, bringing one, two, three, four customers to the table, and they don't let you invest unless you did something wrong, if you do want to invest, it's kind of not, you don't want to risk those customers, right? So it kind of is a way to earn your spot, we say, number one. That's pre-deal. I think, so pre-deal, that's one way where I am finding both fortunately and unfortunately for the industry that we differentiate. Another way is, depending on how early the company is, again, before point of investing or during you know, leading up to the investment after we've come to terms, we help the company find key team members. We have a very deep stack and bench of technical product and, and other industry leader type folks in our network that we keep warm. So we'll talk about this to founders because it's really like, why would they want to hear about this? But we, every week, we have, we have an expert network of hundreds of people, I think nearly a thousand. And they span across the industries that we invest in. And we, every week, we place a few of those people on, all right, Julian, my partner, or me, let's set up coffee or a video call with them. Let's keep them warm, right? Because you don't know when those people can be super useful or helpful to some of those companies, right? So that's another way. Those are two tangible ways, pre-investment, we differentiate and add value. Post-investment, I alluded to this earlier in the conversation, but we are very methodical and surgical, similar to kind of what I described with the expert network with regard to keeping our downstream capital network peers at the Series A and beyond apprised of what we're investing in. So every so integrated projects, perfect example, actually. We invested in them in April. Come June or July, we're going to email along with other deals that we closed in Q2. We're going to email about 60 or 70 Series A investors in our network who we speak to at least once or twice a year live that we have a real relationship with. And we're going to email them and say, hey, these are the latest deals 186 Ventures invested in. And then also to here are the deals that are looking to raise more capital that are already in our existing portfolio. We then log all those responses on a quarterly basis of who is like, oh, I'm really interested in learning about integrated projects when they're going out for their A. And then we keep all that in mind and we start to build momentum for the CEO without them doing anything at all. That's another way that we differentiate because it helps also in some cases, we connect with those investors before they even connect with the company just to gather data on what do they typically look for benchmark wise. That way we can start to help our founders inform their goals 
to some extent, again, without them taking time out of talking to customers or building the product. That's what VC should do. We're, we're the ones that set the terms typically. So we're probably the ones who are probably best positioned, probably best positioned, not always, to provide some insight on, you probably need 3 million in ARR for your A, not just two, right? So th- those are a few ways. I, I can go on and on. I think we're one of the more active PCs in Boston and the Northeast with founder and operator programming, but it's the kind of complete package, Jason. All right, cool. So talk to me about the thesis of what you're looking for in a company. Like, where are you, what, what are you shooting at? And sure. what do you think would be effective? Well, if I had a perfect answer, boy, would I, would I really love that. But the way that w- what we look for, at least I can, I can answer that is there's four pillars, right? And I guess I do want to preface this response with, it really depends on the industry and stage, right? I think we, we, we wait accordingly to whether they're in fintech or healthcare or whatever, and whether they're pre-revenue, pre-product, or they already have some customers and data that we can dig into. Now, with that said, there are four key pillars we look to and we look to break that. The first is the team, right? And I mean, you probably hear that 100% of the time. So founder market fit, why are they uniquely positioned to and are competent enough to build a, a solution and understand the problem, more importantly, better than any of their peers. And, and honestly, and I think this is one that is overlooked oftentimes, but really how passionate and what are the motivations of the founders for building this business? This one, I don't, we are, we're kind of on the fence on in, from a philosophical standpoint, but at least as it relates to investments we make, we do not compromise on being pretty much 100% confident that the founders are building this business for some very unique reason, right? They're building it just because they know they can build a big business, not for us, right? Second point of the four is market, market size, right? We are looking for 50 to 100 Xs. That's what we underwrite every single one of our deals to. The market size either needs to be very large already, or if it is already not large, there needs to be a clear path to getting that large, right? Uh Third point, is sustainable unit economics. We've been saying this for a few years now, but now and before people were talking about what it. matters? But yeah, <laughs> what matters? Now it really matters. No, no kidding. Uh, and uh, they don't need to be profitable today. I mean, arguably none of them are at this stage. That'd be Some pretty impressive at the seed stage, but continue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but I think going into, you know, how are the founders and managers, how are they thinking about the unit economics, right? Because you can really shoot yourself in the foot when you're making those very important team decisions, business model decisions, product decisions throughout the seed and series A, you can find yourself three years in having built an unsustainable model and unwinding that, especially in times of high cost of capital is sometimes just impossible. And we may very well find ourselves in that position with some of our companies. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast, but it's something that we, we really think carefully about. Fourth point, moat competition, differentiation. That's pretty self-explanatory. Well, fair enough. Everybody wants a moat. Okay, cool. All right, so let's talk about that thesis, what you brought to the table. I mean, you've invested in a bunch of stuff. You mentioned a couple ones, but let's talk specifically around the stuff in the fintech sector. Sure. What basically attracted, well, first off, who have you invested in? What attracted to them? What was the what was the real lure there? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Where to start? Because uh, we, we have a lot of uh, fintech positions that we're, we're very excited about. First one I'll talk about is a company called Wingspan. They're based in LA. 
we w- led their uh, one of their seed rounds in December of 2021. And if you think about it, in the wake of the pandemic, there are more and more companies relying on independent contractors to sustain their human resources requirements, right? And coupled with, there are just more and more people. And I think it was arguable three years, but now it's just an unequivocal shift that's happening in most workforces where more and more people are just open to freelancing. Uh-huh. There's many, a lot of data to suggest that. Now, Wingspan comes in, and although there are plenty of contractor-focused payroll platforms, and there are incumbent play, payroll providers like ADP, like uh, Paychex, what Wingspan ends up doing is it creates, it, it takes a holistic approach to providing onboarding and management tools that allow corporations, companies to invite contractors very seamlessly and create a, almost like a W-2-like experience between the two. So it's not just paying out 1099s, but instead you are treating them like an employee and you're creating all the automated workflows that exist with having to deal with the complexities that come with paying 1099s if they're in different states or if they're international and so on. And so that is a huge market that we were tracking. Second point, the founders that we met, obviously, had built what we believe is the best-in-class product tackling this because this is not a a novel idea, right? There are many people that are tackling this space from different regards, but their product, when we saw a demo of it, we we just couldn't believe how polished it was. And the numbers kind of spoke for themselves a bit. They were already that, you know, they were in, they already had some proven ARR, they had tens of millions of dollars in payments volume already. And we we just thought it was a, a really good um, position. And now, you know, since that seed round, they've raised the Series A led by A16Z that they closed in January of this year. And they're continuing to build an all-in-one payroll platform for contractors. But that one is huge market, very much needed. And it's building out a suite of very important financial services products and providing those to a massive yet overlooked market. Then another one that we invested in, which is very high growing, is a company called Moni Africa. It's our only international investment. It's an emerging market play based in Lagos, Nigeria. The founders, uh, former World Bank and fintech professionals. And what they aim to solve is the banking gap for just the entire continent. That's not a small feat. I mean, a lot of plays there, but it's a challenge. Of course. Well, that's why picking the right wedge is important. They started with arguably one of the more difficult wedges to pull off, but the most needed in lending. So, you know, there's been a lot of people that have offered loans to merchants in Africa, whether you want to call them micro loans or whatever. And most of them end up flaming out because they the default rates are through the roof. What Moni does is two differentiated things that really caught our attention. One, well, one, they just understand risk, which is, you know, hard to come by these days, given their backgrounds. And what they do is they take a traditional underwriting approach, let's call a developed banking nation approach, where, all right, send me your tax return, send me this. But also understanding that there's just a fundamental lack of digital footprint in, or footprint in general, as it relates to a lot of these merchants. We're talking people that are generating good income, but it's just not cultural to have a bank account and all these products. So what Moni does is they also create a, uh, a reputation score based on a number of factors. And they couple that with, instead of offering a three-month term, they only do seven-day loans. 
because they knew that if they couldn't manage and control default rates, this would never make it. And people sometimes think, well, what can you possibly do with money for seven days? You're running business. You you can buy inventory and flip it in seven days. I mean, there's a lot that you can do and it adds up. It compounds. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about like, we're not talking about like they're going to buy heavy equipment and keep it on inventory for three months. Like we're talking about like base level needs of like the same thing the micro lending was doing. It's like, hey, this person's buying stuff to take to market and they're transporting it one place to another. And that's all they need, right? Like seven days absolutely fits a sales cycle for most of the stuff that happens in that part of the world, right? So it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And we, so we led their seed round in uh, March of 22 and they were doing about 30 or 40,000 in monthly gross interest revenue with a less than 1% default rate and with 70% margins. And by the end of December, 2022, and it, it, as good as we think we are, and we could have predicted this, this is this far exceeds any expectations. They finished the month of December 22 with $560,000 in monthly gross interest revenue, same less than 1% default rate, same 70% margin. So over, over a 10X within a year revenue. So now they're yeah. doing well over 5 million. So the point is, is we're really excited about what they can do. They now are offering a full deposits product now that they actually are sustainable. Yep. And Jason, they're actually break even positive. Who would have thought? You know, that's, you know, that's, that's one of those perfect examples of it's a, you know, without the boots on the ground, understand the localized issue, it's just exactly. never going to get solved because, you know, you, again, what do you mean I'm going to lend for seven days? You know what the cost that's going to be like, I could just picture the pitch in North American offices of this is insane. Why would we do that? Right. Totally. Whereas like, no, it, it fits the local market so perfectly and the need so perfectly. You're totally right. Excellent. And um, yeah, so those are two prime examples. I mean, we have others too. Uh, I mean, the, the last, the third one is, I'll just finish is the last one I was talk, beginning to talk about integrated projects, which we also just led and which was announced today. They, you know, you might think, well, they're just kind of dealing with property data, right? You know, there's building information models will tell you oh, how many doorknobs and how many doors and how many floors and square footage and all that stuff a building has. If you actually think about it, take it a step further, Jason. You start to centralize all that data and information. Services that were very manual before, such as you need to do a cost segregation report on your building. You go to a tax consulting firm-ish. They'll charge you two, three, maybe even $4 per square foot to walk around with a clipboard and really just tell you exactly what your CAD file can tell you you have. And with the click of a button, you can be eligible for an instant deduction, for example. So that is what this company honestly starts to enable is a whole world and suite of new evolution, I should say, of financial services specific, though, to the largest asset class in the world, which is real estate. So that one we're super excited about, too. And they're doing very well. Excellent. Good. So where do you see it going from here? You're going to stay in this uh shallow under the pool for lack of a better term, or are you going to just, you know, as you move up, scale, up, up market potentially, which everybody does over time, you guys still trying to stay, keep a presence. The, we get this question a lot and it's an important it's common where it's it's a common one. And to your exact point, you're spot on. Everyone moves up the food chain. My co-founder and I, our DNA is early stage. We yeah. are early stage people. Now, what is your definition of early stage Giuseppe? Well, it is up to about the series A. When you get beyond the Series A yeah. and you start generating over $5 million in annually recurring revenue, it changes, right? I think that then it becomes much more quantitative than qualitative. 
And it just requires a different level of process and experience, quite frankly. And we don't have that from an investor standpoint. We do from an operator standpoint, but from an investor standpoint, I would argue that when you go from assessing a seed or series A company to series B and beyond, it is drastically different. There's obviously overlap, but it is there's a clean break off, right? That's why a lot of firms start their growth at series B. Now, we're only seed for fund one. Come fund two, we'll probably still only be seed. Now, to be clear, we do participate in series A's of existing portfolio companies just for to exercise our pro rata. Exactly. Well, I mean, so, you're doubling down on unknown quantities. I mean, it's exactly uh, right. And we're not and we're not the lead underwriter at that point, right? And so it's it's just a different, it's a different calculus at that point. But but the, the more important reason is you know, going back to why won't we start doing A's at fund two? Because because we understand that they're even though we consider Series A early stage, it's still uh, different enough than seed where we recognize we need to be prepared and have the right foundation as an organization to support them. So we'll probably get to Series A's within the next, I don't know, six to 10 years, assuming we have the right organizational foundation. But to answer your question very directly, beyond early stage, we don't see ourselves moving up to because it's just not who we are. Fair enough. All right. So and before we wrap up, there's three questions I asked everybody to end on a positive note. And the first question is, if you had one wish for something to change in your industry or your company as a whole, what would it be? I would say, you know, as an industry, I would encourage founders to build things beyond just traditional SaaS products and just swing for the fences, right? I see a lot of conservative attempts at building technology companies, and that's fine. But I think when in the early stage venture world, the economics just don't work if you're only building and, and, and taking a, a conservative attempts. So I, I just wish that there was more talk about encouraging founders to, to be somewhat foolish in what they're thinking about, because it's those things that end up solving the world's largest well, problem. We've also seen foolish recently go very poorly. But that said, you know, foolish, well, foolish and irresponsible. Foolish, irresponsible plus things. lies, bad combination. <laughs> exactly. You know, right, right. That's bad. The defenses can, can work out well. Right. So that, that's, that's kind of my wish is just encourage founders to be bold and not you know, unequivocally be bold. Right. That's what I would say. Yeah, fair enough. Second question is, what has been the biggest challenge in the company to where it is today? Was it succeeding the first time? I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so 186 Ventures, you're saying? Yeah. So my 186 company. Ventures. I mean, like that's that's the current company, yes. Yeah, I would say biggest challenge Julian and I, my co-founder, have had to overcome, I mean, just raising the first fund, honestly. Yeah. I, I think that uh, we were very fortunate and when we, we raised it, it was in the fall of 2021 before things drastically changed, but it was nonetheless, wasn't easy. We hit it hard and, and we got it done. So I'd say that was probably the biggest obstacle. And then I think just as important and just as difficult was just some of the deals that we led were very difficult, multi-week, in some cases, multi-month processes of staying on touch with founders for a year. It requires a lot of discipline and focus. And that's just the challenge of juggling a million things, but still maintaining that focus and discipline is definitely another big challenge that comes to mind. Excellent. And the last question I have for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting up in the morning to keep on fighting the good fight of this? Uh, this, oh, this is an easy one. Increasing the bar and the standard for helping founders. Every VC, including myself, says we're here to help founders, but the talk, unfortunately, sometimes is much more than the action that follows across the board. And sometimes we're guilty of that, but it's every single day, whether it's a, we spoke to 
1,200 plus companies in our first 14 years of existence, uh, 14 months of existence. And we only invested in a couple of handfuls. So like the, you know, like the, the, the reality is the majority of folks that you speak to, you don't actually end up funding, but they are the ones that many times need the most help, need guidance, build your brand because they're just going to be, there's many more people you say no to than yes to. And knowing all that really inspires me to get out of bed and give it my all and give it my best because I do know that all it takes is backing the right companies. And over the course of 10 to 20 years, you will have done your indirect part in increasing the standards for what it means to be a VC, which is a very privileged role that comes with a lot of responsibility. And founders are giving you some of their very finite equity, earn it. And you, that way you can, you, you probably deserve it and you need to work hard to really continue to deserve it because it's really easy to lose touch of why founders let you invest to begin with. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Giuseppe, I appreciate it. No, thank you, Jason. Really appreciate your time and and having me on today. So that was Giuseppe Stuto of uh, 186 Ventures. Hope you found that informative. And if you were an early stage seed company that fits into their uh, into their thesis, by all means, reach out. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.